The message is titled, How to Be Right When Your World's Wrong. I've already told you that this is going to be a strange way of approaching the scripture. Those two verses that I didn't read to you, I'm going to read momentarily. Because what I didn't read to you is what many of you and perhaps all of you already know. You know that Hannah goes home. She becomes pregnant. And what she prayed for, she is given and she's given this son Samuel. And the Lord blesses both her and Samuel in this way. But you don't know that if you're the reader until you read those two verses. Let's look at this a little bit slower. Here is Hannah's husband, Elkanah. Elkanah was from the land of Ephraim. If you're a Bible scholar, you need to know that that's actually now the place where Joseph of Arimathea was from. Ephraim is modern Arimathea, and it was in Jesus' day. A strange biblical truth is this. Elkanah is mentioned five times in the Bible, but never is it the same person that we're talking about here. I'll bet you didn't know that. Elkanah was very likely wealthy. And the way we know that is because Elkanah had two wives. Don't you go any further with that thought than what I just gave it to you. He had two wives, Hannah and Peninnah. Hannah, in this scripture, I want you to look close at how that second verse is written. The name of the one was Hannah, the name of the other was Peninnah. Now, in normal language, you would immediately, if you were going to explain something, Go right back in the order that you told it, but that's not how it's done here. Hannah is first, then Peninnah, but then the writer says, Peninnah had children, and Hannah had no children. Now what's going on there is, is that in, in Elkanah's mind, he loved, the, script, the writer of Scripture has told us, he loved Hannah. But even though he loved her, she was childless, and Peninnah probably is why Elkanah had two wives, was so that he could have children. You see, barrenness, that is, having no children, was a huge tra tragedy in these days. For Hannah, this would have broken her heart. If you know a mother, a wife, rather, who has tried to have children and cannot, you know how difficult that can be for that person. You see, in the times that we're talking about here, the husband's hopes and dreams, his future for someone to leave everything he had to, it all rested upon that wife having children. And it says in the third verse, this man Elkanah used to go up year by year and sacrifice to the Lord at Shiloh. Now this would have been the tabernacle, but it would not have been the temple but it was certainly a feast that happened at least three times a year in their lives. And we believe that actually uh, this was the Feast of Tabernacles. Jesus went to the Feast of Tabernacles, you remember, when he went and Mary and Joseph lost him. That is the feast that we're talking about. And it says, on the day when Elkanah sacrificed, he would give portions to Peninnah, his wife, and to all her sons and daughters. It was typical 
when they went to offer the sacrifices at the tabernacle for not just the father or the husband, but also the spouse, the wife, as well as the children to bring something of an offering for that feast. And so Hannah would, or rather Elkanah would give to Hannah, or to Peninnah, as well as to her children, something to offer. But look at this next verse. But to Hannah, he gave a double portion because her, he loved her though the Lord had closed her womb. And just before we go any further, I want you to know it's likely that both Elkanah as well as Hannah believed that this barrenness, this lack of ability to have children, was something that came from God. That for some reason, this had happened. How many of you are like that? I'm supposed to be the guy that knows better than that. But if you know me well, you know that every time something goes wrong, I'll be the guy that says, what is God trying to tell me? I mean, the windshield washer fluid runs out. I'm saying, what does this mean? And it's foolishness. But in this day and age, likely Elkanah as well as Hannah thought, what's God trying to say in the midst of this? Tragedy upon tragedy, Peninnah, the wife who did have children, who is here named as Hannah's rival, used to provoke her. Provoke her grievously to irritate her because the Lord had closed her womb. Here is this other person who likely became the second wife because of Hannah's barrenness. And she creates this problem of harassing Hannah because of that very fact. And so it went on year by year. Have you ever known somebody that's been harassing every time you see them? And every time they would go to worship, here is Peninnah year by year doing this same thing. As often as she went up to the house of the Lord, she used to provoke her. And Hannah, when she was there, would weep. And Hannah, when she was there, would not eat. Day after day, year after year, she wept, she would not eat when they went up to Shiloh. Day by day, year after year, Elkanah's wife Peninnah would harass. This wasn't just a circumstance. It was a deeply and profound theological issue for Hannah. Why has God closed my womb? Why is this my circumstance in life? And Elkanah, her husband, said to her, Hannah, why do you weep? Why don't you eat? Why is your heart sad? Am I not more to you than ten sons? Now, you've got to stop and understand that the number ten meant something. You remember Jesus told the parable of the ten virgins. The number ten is completion. The number ten is fullness. And what Elkanah is saying to Hannah, who we know he loved, who he, we know he gave a double portion to, who we know that in spite of her barrenness, he didn't say, oh, you can't have children. He said, I don't care. I love you irregardless. And he said to her, Hannah, don't you understand I love you so much that your completeness is found in my love. We will complete each other. We will be enough for each other. 
And after they'd ate and drank in Shiloh, Hannah rose up. Now Eli, the priest, was sitting on the seat beside the doorpost. I know it says temple. This was a tabernacle. He was sitting by the doorpost. The chief religious officer of this place called Shiloh had eaten. He sat down, sat down by a doorpost. And here's Hannah, all provoked, completely worked up. It says she's deeply distressed. And she's praying to the Lord, and she's weeping bitterly. Get that picture. Deeply distressed, praying to her God, and weeping bitterly. And she vowed a vow, and she said, O Lord of hosts, if you will look on the affliction of your servant, and remember me, and not forget your servant, but will give to your servant a son. I will give him to the Lord all the days of his life, and no razor will touch his head. Hannah just made a vow. If God would give her a son, she would give him back to the Lord. Now you need to understand a couple of things about this vow. First, what it meant was there'll be no grapes, that is, no wine for life. There would be the shaving, no shaving, rather, of one's head. And this person would avoid dead bodies. And usually these types of vows were, made, vows were made for a period of time. Hannah has made this vow for life. If there's anyone else in the Bible that would have held a vow that would have been for life, I can only think of two people. It would have been Samson and John the Baptist. This was significant, what Hannah vowed for her son. She recognizes, if you look at this scripture, she recognizes that her only chance of having a child is because a child is a gift from God. She has to pray. She has to ask God for that child. And if God would answer her prayer, this is what she would do. And as she's praying, here's Eli, that priest, sitting outside the tabernacle door. His belly is full. And he's looking at Hannah praying at that doorway. He's quiet. I pray quietly, mostly. There were no words coming out. But her lips were moving. I point that out to you for this reason. Hannah was really praying. I, you know, I don't want to tell you that I peek when people pray, but I do. We all do. Sometimes you can sense when somebody's really praying to God, and then you can also sense when somebody is just wanting to get to the turkey dinner, so let's get it over with. Hannah's praying. She's in deep distress. She's weeping bitterly. She's making a vow which obviously caused her to really, truly be heartfelt in her actions, and her lips are moving. And Eli's watching. Hannah was speaking in her mouth, only her, her lips moved and her voice was not heard. And as Eli watched her, he took her to be a drunken woman. I wrote this down and I think it's important to say. Hannah's spirituality, or if you would, spiritual sensitivity of all things holy is seen in the fact that her lips moved, but her mouth made no sound. 
it was coming from deep inside her. You know, Paul writes about when we don't have words to pray that the Spirit intercedes with us with utterings and groanings because our words don't count. They can't be said. That's the type of prayer. It's, it, it, it's interesting to me that Hannah is praying this deeply felt spiritual prayer. And the guy who is supposed to be the religious authority thinks she's drunk. Isn't it interesting that this very deeply heartfelt prayer of Hannah is viewed by those who are supposed to be the professional religious authority as a drunken woman? I tell you that for this reason. It tells you something about both of them. It tells you something about both of them. And Eli said to her, how long will you go on being drunk? <laughs> Put your wine away. If you were to take this and say it in English, the way that it would come out word for word, it would go something like this. How long do you want to continue to make a spectacle of yourself with your drunkenness? How long do you want to keep on doing this, Hannah, making yourself look like a fool? Hannah answered that, no, my Lord, I'm a woman that's troubled in spirit. I've not drunk wine nor strong drink. I'm pouring out my soul before the Lord. H Hannah says, I haven't hit the bottle. I'm not pouring liquid. I'm pouring everything that's in me out. Don't regard your servant as a worthless woman. For all along, I've just been speaking out of my great vexation and my anxiety. What, <laughs> what person would look at another and think that's a worthless woman? Eli never said that. But what's critical here for you and I to understand is that that's how Hannah felt. Yes, I have a husband. I cannot provide him children. God is against me for some reason I don't have a child and here's God's religious authority and what he's saying to me is is that you are a worthless woman because of your drunkenness Hannah says no 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 you've got this all wrong I'm speaking out of my situation I'm speaking out of my heart I'm anxious I'm worried I'm vexed I'm I'm hurt and it hit Eli that that was true and he says to her, go in peace. May the God of Israel grant your petition that you've made to him. I don't think Eli knew what she had prayed. Her mouth didn't say it. Her, her lips just moved. Eli's watching her thinking she's a drunk woman. And finally he reals, realizes in that last statement, don't think I'm a worthless woman. I'm praying out of my heart. I'm praying, pouring out my heart before God. He realized that she was the real deal. He's a genuine deal. And he says, I hope that God will give you what you've prayed for. I don't even know that Eli knew she made a vow. But he recognized how genuine she was. And she said, let your servant find favor in your eyes. And the woman went her way and ate, and her face was no longer sad. I told you when I read this originally that I wouldn't read the two verses, but I'm going to read them to you now so you know how this story goes if you don't. 
They rose early in the morning. They worshiped before the Lord. They went back to their house at Ramah. Elkanah knew his wife, Hannah. That is to say, they had sexual relations. And the Lord remembered Hannah. That is to say, she became pregnant. In due time, Hannah conceived. She bore a son. She called his name Samuel. And she said, I've asked for him from the Lord. These two verses that I've just read to you don't matter today. I love a good ending, don't you? I love a happy ending. I love it when, when God answers prayers, when everything works out. And if you had a normal pastor this morning, that's what I'd talk to you about, but that's not what I'm going to talk to you about. I want to talk to you about something else. And it's all the way back in the eighth verse. Elkanah comes to her and he says to his wife, Hannah, why do you weep? Why do you not eat? Why is your heart sad? Am I not more to you than ten sons? And church, I want you to know that little phrase couched in that passage this morning, the second to the last phrase, why is your heart sad? should actually be translated, why is your heart bad? You say, Joel, what are you talking about? It's a phrase. It's a Hebrew phrase. And the only other place you'll find it is all the way back in the book of Deuteronomy. It's in the 15th chapter. Now, all of us have heard about, and if I took you right now back to Deuteronomy and read to you the 15th chapter, you would lose the whole point of the message. So I want you to listen close. Deuteronomy 15 is all about the year of Jubilee. Every seven years, all the debts were to be forgiven. Every seven years, if somebody owed you, they were to be freed from that. They were to be set free from that. They were to be allowed to start afresh and to start anew. And where this phrase is found in Deuteronomy 15 is in the 10th verse. And I want you to hear what it says. It's talking about giving someone who has owed you and who has borrowed from you and has not yet paid you back, giving them a second start. And here's what the passage says. You shall give to him freely, and your heart will not be grudging when you give to him. Because for this the Lord your God will bless you and all your work and all that you undertake. And the point here is church. That forgiving and letting it go and giving it up is one of the way that God, ways that God chooses to bless the person that forgives. And when Elkanah comes to his wife and he says, Hannah, why do you weep so bitterly? Why won't you eat? Why has this done this to you? And why is your heart so sad? He's saying, Hannah, look what this has done to you. You're not just grieving, you have turned inside to a place that really isn't good. Why do you have not just sadness, but badness inside of you? Elkin is asking his wife, why is your heart bad? And church, I just want to stop and say to us gathered here today, unforgiveness grudge-holding, vengeance makes us bad 
It makes us change. From the inside out, it does something to us. And we may look in the mirror and never see it, but usually somebody around us will. Most of the time, the problem is we are so focused on one issue that we can't see what that one issue is doing to us. Hannah is looking at the fact that she could not have children. She was keenly aware of this, as any woman would be. But it was being multiplied by the actions of her so-called adversary, Peninnah. She harassed her again and again and again. And when it, became to the, when it came to the point that that's all she could see, she couldn't see anything else. But Elkanah, her husband, did. He didn't come to her and say, Hannah, you know why you don't have children? It's because you're such a bad person. And that's why you're so bitter now. He came to her and he said, Hannah, why is your heart turning like this? This isn't how you used to be. I hope it's okay to place this right here. I, I really worked on this this week to know whether I should say what I'm about to say to you, but I'm going to fasten on your seatbelt. All right, you want to head on. Nobody put their seatbelt on, I saw. Listen close to the next few sentences because they're going to... They're going to have to be listened to well. You know, one of the hardest things that ministry gives to people like me, it's right but unpopular decisions. Let me tell you how this goes. Wrong but popular decisions will win you short-term adulation. But that adulation will be short-lived because you can never build a ministry on wrong but popular decisions. Right but unpopular decisions are the worst, even though they're right. They'll cause knee-jerk reactions in people. They'll win you enemies not, enemies, not only overnight, but in a minute. And usually those decisions breed bitterness amongst the immature. And I'll tell you how I know that. Because I live where you live. And I lived where I lived in Bolivar, and I lived where I lived in Alliance. And what that means is I shop in the same grocery stores. I go to the same movie theater. And I see people who at one time allowed me to share in the joys of their life and the trials of their circumstance. And then you see them, and they have a deep sense of bitterness in them. In fact, they'll avoid you at all costs. That's when things are good. If things aren't so good, they'll try to provoke you. And at their very worst, they'll try to get even for what they think you've done. They'll do it with a sense of God-ordained righteousness that says, I'm right and you're going to suffer for it. Their attitude will clearly be symptomatic of the fact that they are not right, but they can't see it. Someone's going to suffer for it. Usually their motto goes something like this, I don't get mad, I get even. Unfortunately, these things happen. Fortunately, they don't happen all the time. 
and that bitterness blinds them from seeing what is painfully obvious to everyone else. There's blood on the floor, and it's really bitter blood. Elkanah, Hannah's husband, saw what Hannah could not see. It's what the situation was doing to Hannah. Hannah, why are you weeping like this? Hannah, why are you weeping with all of this vexation? Hannah, why is your heart becoming bitter? Hannah, why are you not only sad, but your heart's also bad? Hannah, there's got to be a better way. And this has led me to my bottom line today, church. I'm going to read it to you before I put it on the screen. Holding on to God means letting go of everything else. You ever ride a roller coaster? Not long ago, we went to Cedar Point, and, and Janice got me on this thing. It's, I don't know what it's called, the death something or other. I don't know what it was. And the next day, she said to me, you know, we need to try that one. And it's the tallest and the highest one there. When you come down, you actually go around that hook in this way. I mean, you, you, you come all the way around, and you're, you're kind of not only perpendicular to the ground, but you're actually coming back in on it. And it'll scare the bejeebies out of you. <laughs> and I was dumb enough to agree to that. I'll never do it again. Sometimes life is like that. You know what I mean? Hannah, no, it's not fair. Hannah, no, it's not right. Hannah, no, I can't answer all those questions that you have, but I can tell you it's doing something to you. You're letting the roller coaster ride affect you. Holding on to God means you got to let go of everything else. Trusting God, walking by faith, means you can no longer hold on to your status, your self-righteousness, all that you think is going to get you through. Holding on to God means even letting go of your unforgiveness. I want you to remind you that Elkanah gave Hannah a double portion to offer to God. And for all of that double portion, it could never account for the bitterness that apparently Elkanah saw growing in his wife. Church, I think we come with our double portion sometimes. We do good. If church meets three times a day, we'll be there. Our radio is always tuned to Christian radio, except for when the Guardians are in the playoffs. <laughs> if your heart's bitter, you can do all that, and everyone around you will eventually see it. But more important than everyone else, God sees it. And what is it doing to you is far worse than what originally started you on that trek. Hannah's worship of God down there at Shiloh was about to be marred by what had happened to her. Bitterness was settling in on her, her situation, her circumstance. I think it possibly even might have been going to live itself out against her rival, this woman called Peninnah. 
The Jews didn't have Jesus, but they did have a principle that they lived by. It starts in the Old Testament in Deuteronomy 10, verse 12, and you actually find it all the way out in the book of Micah, chapter 6. It's repeated again and again through the Gospels, or rather through the Old Testament. And I want to read just one version of it to you, one, one, one place where it's read, and you'll recognize it immediately. He has told you, O oh man, what is good, and what does the Lord require of you, but to do justice, to love kindness, and to walk humbly with God. Did you hear that? What does God require of you, Hannah, but to be right? I told you, church, today that the message was going to be this, how to be right when your world's all wrong. But I want you to understand it doesn't mean how to prove that you are right. It's how to be right with God when everything around you explodes in your face. Hannah, what does God require of you but to be sure that your heart stays tender? But to, to be sure that that bitterness doesn't cause your heart to turn stony. Hannah, what does God require of you but that you be right before him? Church, I'm here to tell you, if I, I hope you have no illusions that I've got this down. If I had my way, who knows what I'd be doing today, but God had his way, so here I am. But it doesn't make any difference. I am still just all that I used to be. And it's easy to allow the things that happen in life to change you. Let me ask you a question. Who do you need to forgive? Your spouse? Your friend? Your friend or your spouse that's dead? Your father? Your mother, your pastor, your former pastor, your child? Who exactly is your adversary? Because I want to promise you one thing that's for sure. If you haven't dealt with that, it's not worth it. When Jesus hung on the cross, the most important words I believe he said were these. Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. If Hannah would have looked at her adversary in that light, Sin has so blinded Peninnah that she's turned this blessing of God that God has given to her up on its end and made it a curse for me. Forgive her, but help me to forgive her. There's only one way for us, church, and that's through Jesus. And when you choose to hold on, to the, grasp on tightly to the God of the Bible, to the living Son of God that lived and walked this earth and died for us. When you choose to hold on to Him, the good news is you have to let go of everything else. And that includes the sin, the bitterness, and the heartache.